0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Don't be face in the crowd. Hey folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 536. It is Friday, October 22nd, 2010, and we are on a Friday, so we're going to do your calls to 866 65 Think. If you're listening now, obviously you can't call in live. The show is pre recorded. That is a number you can call, though, anytime again 866 65 T H I N K. Leave me a question or a comment to hear on the air, and uh, we'll get you on the air eventually. I'm working on calls from about two, two and a half weeks ago today. So we do build a backlog, but generally I get everybody on the air sooner or later. Once in a while there's a call that doesn't quite fit a show. I skip it over, but I save it. We go back and pull it in. Some of you guys called in like twice, like one right after the other. If you hear your call today and you don't hear your second one, I didn't pick the better one and throw the other one away. One's kind of just a funny call and... Uh, just kind of an interesting off-topic subject that we'll talk about. And the guy left another one that's more of a survival. The ones that did two, I'll, I'll get your second one. I just don't give you two on the air in one day because I don't think it's fair to everybody else. But... Get the calls in. Remember, we're talking about preparedness and homesteading and all that good stuff and being self-reliant and independent and life in general because we want to live the show credo, living that better life if times get or even if they don't. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. Sawtooth Tactical is a great company run by a great guy who's going to take care of you no matter what you need. He's going to make sure you get what you need. Uh, as long as he sells it. If you want elephant tusks from him, I don't think he's going to help you with that. But if you need something for that tactical lifestyle, you're going to be able to find that Sawtac. You're going to get first-rate customer service. The best stuff and only the best stuff with the best service. Check out Sawtooth Tactical. And remember, on Sawtooth Tactical, when you tell them in your order notes that you found them on the Survival Podcast, they always seem to throw a little extra goody in there. So make sure you let them know that you found them here at TSP. Next up, the Lifesaver 4K. That's the Lifesaver 4000 water bottle uh, available from Ready-Made Resources. The Lifesaver water bottle and its big brother, the Lifesaver Jerrycan, are filters that filter down to 0.015 microns, and that's smaller than all bacteria and viruses. This is a filter that'll make just about any water safe to drink. Now, we're going to talk about water today on the show, and we're going to talk about more about using water in your home. These devices are really not for filtering the water that comes out of your sink. Not that they won't do a great job, but it's not their purpose. They are rugged, portable containers designed for use in the field in situations where you need to make sure in a rugged environment that the water you're drinking is safe to drink and isn't going to make you sick. So for a major bug out, uh, for wilderness camping, for any kind of field-level movement that anybody's doing, anything like that, These products were built for use by uh, rescue workers in the military. That's how they're being used throughout the world. You can have that same technology available to you. Next up, make sure you check out our forum, guys. I'm not going to talk about anything else today with the social media stuff other than the forum. The forum is a great place to forge relationships. I can tell you there have been amazing relationships formed around the world and next door. People have, have realized that they've got people just like them just down the road a bit because of the forum. Get involved in the forum, check out the regional boards, tell your story, ask your questions, get involved. Uh, It is a great community. Last but not least, consider joining the member support brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at 20 cents an episode. That means every time I get on the air, you're basically paying me voluntarily two dimes. And if you think the show's worth two dimes an episode, you want a whole bunch of great stuff to get a return of investment back on Join the Member Support Brigade. Uh, What kind of return of investment? How about $100 worth of free eBooks? How about one benefit alone from Western Botanicals, their preferred membership that gets you 25% off everything they have that's worth the $50 a year that it costs to join the Member Support Brigade? How about a $29 lifetime discount membership to uh, Safe Castle Royal that gives you big discounts on everything that they sell? And how about discounts from another 18 different vendors? How about 20 videos you can't get anywhere else? That's the kind of ROI I'm talking about there. Discounts, free stuff, extra content, and you're supporting the show again at 20 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which again is your calls, your questions. Let's queue up that first call. You guys gave me some tough ones today. You gave me some fun ones today. Let's have fun with the whole thing, though, and I'll do my best to help you like I always do. So let's take that first call now.
2: Hi, Jack. My name is Susie, and um I live in a household of women, and we're doing our part to prep. And um, there's no man in the house, so to speak, uh, or man of the house. And uh, we got a big problem with self-defense because, to make a long story short, we we can't shoot guns in, uh, because of uh, physical disabilities. Um, we have two very young ladies that uh live with us, our nieces. Uh, we have guardianship of them. If times get really rough, how can a house full of women cope with uh really bad times where men might take advantage of the fact that we're women and we're not very good on the physical defense? The community we live in is not very tight, but we might be able to negotiate with, um, a couple of good neighbors, uh, for protection if things happen. How should we negotiate with them and not be taken advantage of? I don't know how else to word it. Um, you know, been listening to your show for, uh, several months now. Uh appreciate it. Learned a lot. Um, thank you.
1: Well, first, God bless you guys. Uh, I hope you, uh, you're you making the best life you can with what you have. It sounds like you're really good people and you're, you're helping a lot of others. Um, when you've got little kids in the house like that, you're dealing with disabilities and everything, and you're trying to make the best of what you have. And uh, man, that's what it's all about. That's America. So God bless you, first of all. Thank you for calling in and trusting me with such an important question. I I really appreciate that. I'll do my best for you, but I am a man and I do think like a man and if I see a nail and it needs to go down, I get a great big hammer and I pound the nail into the ground. So the first thing I'm going to say is I don't understand what... Physical disability would prevent you from being able to use a, a specifically a handgun for self-defense and getting training on it. I don't care if you're in a wheelchair. If you are paralyzed from the neck down, fine. And then we've got to find some other kind of help in in a, in a bad situation, right? But if your arms work and you can see... There is no reason you can't have the empowerment of being armed and defend yourself under the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution. And I guarantee you, if you talk to some local gun ranges and tell them that you're what you want to do, not only will they help you, not only will they get you some training, but they'll probably turn it into a public relations thing. And they might just do a lot of things for you for free to make an example that anybody can defend themselves. So at least consider the option. Now I'm going to let it go. I had to say it first. I'm going to let it go, and I'm going to come up with some other things for you. The second thing, how do you defend yourself without a gun? The biggest thing you have to realize is the strongest uh, uh, defenses that you have right now are the, are the walls of your home. And the, in general, when you keep people out, you keep danger out. So I would definitely look at an alarm system. Um, it is only... Really, something that summons the police after the fact, but at least it 's there, and if it 's an audible alarm uh once it 's set off, often it will dissuade an intruder Now, this is not during a total you know catastrophe that this is the case, but day to day understand that the the potential for danger is more likely to come from a single invasion than the whole world ends in the zombies' march and everything else, right, so live for today, plan for tomorrow all right. Um, just like the ants do. Just because the ants are storing food for the winter doesn't mean that they don't eat some today and, and what have you. So think a little bit more about the, the more likely threats and an alarm system is low cost way to, uh, to, to, to at least have some level of insurance with that. Uh the next thing is to have protocols in the house. We don't open the door for strangers until they're identified and we you know, things like that. So make sure and I'm not gonna tell you exactly what to do as far as those protocols go. You're gonna to have to develop those for yourself, but make sure everybody in the house, especially the kids, know it. Just because some guy's smiling at you through the peephole doesn't mean that he's friendly. Uh, next, do not advertise the fact that you're just some women alone. Uh, I would not advertise that at all. The only people I would let know that are trusted neighbors that you can rely on, like you're saying. Now, how do you negotiate with people for defense? You don't negotiate with people for defense, especially at a time when there's no real need for defense. Now, if, if if something happened tomorrow and you're going to run out to a neighbor, you might ask them to help you out. But the best way you can make sure that if something goes wrong in your neighborhood, that your neighbors are going to be there for you and protect you is be a good neighbor, be involved with them, and make friends with them now. I'll explain to you how this works. When you like somebody, when you care about somebody, and they're threatened, you defend them. Okay, that's, that's in the, the male. And that's in the female too, but it's really in the male with a woman. Doesn't matter if there's any kind of romantic thing or anything going on at all. It doesn't have to be that. If you are a female and you are liked, a person just finds you to be a good person, and you are threatened, the natural male instinct is to provide defense. Again, I'm not putting, this is not a sexist thing, but it's just more, in the, with women, it's when you threaten a child. It doesn't even have to be her child. If you threaten a child, a woman turns into that. When you threaten a woman, a man, natu- or a child, a lot of times, but definitely a woman or a female of the species, the man turns into that. So the best way that you can know that you can rely on your neighbors to help you in a tough situation is to make sure they know you and that you're a good neighbor in the community, that they're going to naturally want to help. The next thing I would say, if you're not going to deal with guns, if you're not going to learn to use a gun, then go to uh, Cold Steel's website or any of the places where they resell it and get, get about 10 great big giant cans of, Of a product called Inferno. It is a pepper spray that is made of a mixture of hot peppers and black pepper. Now, why do they put black pepper in it? Black pepper ain't all, it sucks, but it ain't all that bad compared to, you know, having arrow juice in the face. Because if you've ever gotten a whiff of black pepper, the first instinct that you're going to have is to sneeze. And when you sneeze, before you blow out, what do you do? You inhale rapidly. You kind of that. Well, when you do that and you've just been hit in the face with pepper spray, guess what happens? You suck it into your nose, your throat, and it is the most devastating um, pepper spray that I've found. We've switched. I've always carried stuff on my key ring. Um, I talked about using it to hold off a dog before. I won't do that again today. I make my wife carry it. I make my son carry it. Uh, even if I'm armed, I'm going to carry pepper spray. Because it's a less than lethal form of defense and it will defuse many situations. And I would have a great big can sitting right by the door. I'd have a great big can by the nightstand. You teach the kids, you guys don't touch this. And when they're old enough to know what it is and what it does, teach them how to use it. You point it and you push. And again, disabled or not, if if you're right or left hand worse than you can see, you can defend yourself with an implement like that or even a firearm. But I would really encourage you, one, start living an empowered life. I hear some fear in your voice. Don't be afraid. When you're afraid, you send out signals that make you more likely to be victimized. Live in power. You are a strong person. The fact that you're doing the things that you're doing tells me that Don't completely rule out farms. At least go see if you can get some education on them. If you're not comfortable, that's a personal choice. But then put some means of defense, and I can't think of a better one other than having good neighbors that know who you are and having great relationships with them, a good solid self-defense tool like pepper spray, and protocols about when and when you do not open the door, and maybe an alarm system. Great question. I hope that helps. It's the best I can do. Let's take the next one.
3: Hi,
4: Jack. Brent Amer calling from Prince Edward Island, Canada, member of the uh, forum and a uh, contributor to the podcast. Question regarding uh, older single people going into retirement. Uh, what are the things that you would like to be cognizant of, such as uh, infrastructure, well, septic, housing, roof, things that you need to plan for financially, capital expenditures that may catch you by surprise? So you can comment on that, that would be good. Thank you. Bye.
1: Well, you did a pretty daggone good job yourself there of naming the big ones. Obviously, if you have a well, you need to look at that. Um, what you'll find with wells, if you'll get a good well technician out to look at your system, is they'll tell you there's a few parts that are most likely to be ones that fail. There might be a resistor or something. That In, in my case, there was an electronic part that is subject to failure because of lightning strikes and not necessarily the well being hit, but the ground around the well being struck. So we keep an extra one of those around. So one thing you can do is anything that could fail, bring in a professional to look at it, tell you the products or the parts of it that are most likely to fail, and if you can't have them in reserve. A septic system, if you do the right things, is basically a lifelong purchase. If you don't put things into the toilet that don't belong there, and I do believe in adding the bacteria stuff that you can add, about once every three months uh, to help keep the septic system healthy. I don't know if it really helps as much as the man. Of course, the manufacturer says it's wonderful. They want you to buy it. I don't know if it's as wonderful as they say, but it certainly can't hurt anything, and it's a good idea to do. Uh, so septic, as long as you take care of it, I don't think it's a big risk. It's always good to have capital reserves for anything that comes up. Your roof is something that, in general, most people end up replacing a roof every 15 to 20 years, and in some environments uh, more often, um, especially with harsh weather conditions. Not necessarily hail or something that would be covered by insurance, but simply uh, solar radiation that's really heavy. One of the things you can look at doing to mitigate a roof issue is the next time you have to put a roof on, put a steel roof on, it'll outlast the house. It'll cost more, but you'll pay for it once. Now, if you're putting a roof on a house and you're 75 years old and the average roof in your area lasts 25 years, that'll take you to 100, and most of us are taking a dirt nap by 100. So at that point, it might make sense to just say the heck with it and go the cheapest route and put a decent roof on the house if you need it. If you're 45 and you're looking at retiring early at 55 and you're having to put a roof on your house, good time to think about putting that steel roof on your house. The biggest things with anything around your home that you're going to depend on is to put the best, longest lasting installation you can in when you do it and know the cost of repair and replacement and understand that everything that can fail is not going to fail. Some portion of everything that is possible of failing will fail. So one of the best things you could do for instance, is determine all the infrastructure on your property that can fail. put together a capital reserve fund. It, it could be all with your retirement or whatever doesn't have to but just a segment of that that you know is is is, uh, is allocated toward upkeep repair and replacement of, of things that can fail. and if you have let's say a total replacement cost of thirty thousand dollars, have at least fifteen thousand or fifty percent allocated to do that, and you'll be able to get through most things, and if you do deplete it, you'll have time to figure out what you're going to do next. Uh, if you have nothing allocated for it, and the day that you take some money out, you're on a fixed income now, you're on a, uh, a fixed income bond fund, and, and whatever Social Security is, is around, and a pension, or a for- whatever's there, and you're drawing from that, and you have to go pull $15,000 out of it in a lump sum and pay for something. And that reduces your monthly income now, or either you either have you know, two choices, you're either gonna reduce your monthly income, or you're gonna reduce, reduce the number of months that that income is gonna come in, and that is no position to be in. So try to put a reserve of at least 50% of the total replacement cost of the key infrastructure on your property, and that's off the top of my head, guy. I, I gotta be honest with you. Like I sat around and thought about this, I still am under 40. And I still sometimes have a hard time reaching out 20 years into my own future, and I'm almost going to be 60, and thinking that way and giving you guys that are senior to me the best advice that I can. I only know so much, but that's that's the way I would handle that. And to any of you folks out there that are in your 60s or 70s and you listen to this show, thank you. I consider that a real honor that anybody that's been around that much longer than me would listen to me. I really appreciate you, and I appreciate... Uh, what you've done to help make this country what it is and make sure you're spreading that wisdom that you're carrying because most of you folks in that age bracket remember the America that I never really got to know and we need you guys to tell your stories and let people know them before you guys pass on so that they're not forgotten when you're gone we're losing the last of our World War II veterans right now folks the last of them that's sad, so make sure if you're part of that generation you're leaving something behind. Uh, again, thank you for the question. Best I can do, let's take the next one.
0: Hey, Jack. Uh, kind of an off-topic question, and you might not want to include this one on your show, um, but I know you've stated a number of times that you're a big perp guy um, raise and keep a variety of snakes. Um, well, with... The winter coming, we've had some small furry critters move into our house. Um, I was curious on trapping them and uh, feeding them to our snake. I've heard people say, Oh, you don't want to do that, there's parasites and whatnot and oh uh, you know, horrible to other people going, No, it's really not that bad. We eat you eat deer and rabbit, you know, what you know, you think there's gonna be that much more parasites in a field mouse? probably healthier than the mice you're getting, you know, jacked up on, you know, antibiotics and whatnot from the mouse factories. So I was just curious to know as a, you know, prepper and as a herb guy, what you thought on, you know, capturing using, you know, non-poisoning methods, obviously, and feeding, you know, the field mice that wander into our house to our snake. Thanks, Jack. Looking forward to your answer.
1: Well, I can see why you'd think I wouldn't put that on the show, but I think it's, really necessary every once in a while, as serious as this stuff is, that we kind of back off and just talk about something that's a little fun and a little funny. And if you are a, a reptile enthusiast, then you might actually want to know the answer to this question. And even if you're not, you're probably thinking, well, a bunch of crazy snake keepers, and maybe I can make it a little bit entertaining for you. But here's what I can say to the answer to your question. Uh, out in my backyard in the springtime, I have a bunch of these great big blackbirds called grackles, and I take out my pellet gun and I shoot those damn things because I don't like them there and they disrupt everything else that's going on. And after I take out about a half a dozen to a dozen in the springtime, they don't show up again till next spring. They seem to be pretty smart birds that learn that this is not a good place to be. Um, what I do with them is feed them to a great, big, giant, Taiwanese beauty rat snake. Uh, this snake is about ten feet long, but he 's only about as big around as a little bit i mean not not quite as big around as a coffee cup coffee cup. These are a longer, slenderer snake, and they love birds um, I have trapped uh cotton rats and i 've fed them to my boas and my pythons and i 've had no ill ill results. Um, we don't have a lot of field mice around here. When we did have field mice around in another property, and I had some smaller rat snakes, like uh, corn snakes and things like that, that they're, you know, appropriate size for, I've always fed them to them. I've had the cat bring home a small mouse or rat uh, that it's killed and not yet eaten, and I've, I've fed it to the snakes. Is it a risk? Is there a risk of infection? Yep. Is there a risk in, of infection when you feed laboratory mice and rats to your snakes? Yep. And anybody that tells you there isn't is wrong. Because any place you have rodents in high numbers, you have potential for disease. And they are feeding them lots of antibiotics. And they are feeding them anything they can to accelerate their growth rate. If you think about this, if I am a mouse producer uh, and I sell mice for a living, what I actually do is I breed as many of these things as I can and I size them out. Because a little snake needs a fuzzy mouse. And a medium snake needs kind of a hopper to adult mouse. And then a bigger snake needs an adult breeder size mouse. So what I do is I breed these mice. And the way they they, uh, they they terminate them is they expose them to CO2, right? So they 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 basically just put them as, or put them asleep with CO2, and uh, then they segment them out into bags and freeze them up and ship them out. Well, if I want to be profitable, I want the biggest mouse that I sell. I'm getting the most money for, so I want to be able to grow my mice to the largest size as quickly as possible. So I'm going to do whatever I can to accelerate that growth rate. Now, I do feed those types of mice mice. It's a freaking snake. I mean, when it all comes down to the end of it, it's a snake. If you are an exotic reptile breeder, if you're someone that's breeding ball pythons that are these weird morphs, the that, that people that have more money than brains, in my opinion. I, I admire the animals, but I'm not giving you $20,000 for a snake. But if you have breeder animals like that, then you would be best suited to stick to, uh, to, to rodents from a trusted source uh, that, to minimize the potential risk. But a plain old red tail boa or something like that I mean, I love my animals, but i don 't see a snake like a dog i don 't cuddle up with it it 's a snake, so if I have extra animals around i 'll feed them to the snakes now, just for some of you guys out there, the word he was trying, he was saying at the beginning was a, a big herper, which comes from herpetologist a herpetologist is a person that studies reptiles and amphibians i 'm a huge enthusiast with this at one time, my collection was over forty animals. It is now nine, and I intend to break it, make it eight, and I'm gonna just—that's what I'm gonna have. Um, they are not a prep. Um, I guess I do prep for them because I keep a lot of frozen mice around and rats around for them, so that uh, at any given time they have three or four months worth of food in the future. That's my convenience. They are expendable if the shit hits the fan before anybody asks. But when I was a kid, I grew up watching people. Like, here's a name for you that only the older folks will remember: Marlon Perkins. I'm mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Before there was an Animal Planet and the Discovery and all this other stuff. Uh, back then, like that was the guy. And I grew up reading books by guys like Carl Caulfield, and I wanted to be somebody that went out in the field and worked with reptiles as a kid. And as you grow up, you know, some of those things you decide that's not really what I want to do as a career for one reason or another. But this is how I hold on to a piece of it. So you learned a little something about Jack today. And if you are a herpetologist, you got my opinion. Uh, on this, I'm sure most of you that keep snakes completely disagree with it, and I don't fault you for that. I just figure it's it's still just a snake. Okay, These are not expensive breeding animals that I have, and I know people get, they almost try to turn their snakes into like pets like a dog or a cat as much as I love them. They're not that for me. Uh, I do like knowing about them, and I do think it gives me an advantage in a situation where I have to deal with snakes in the wild. Uh, and I am a, a conservationist with reptiles, and I don't only think I'm cold hearted toward the cold blooded. Um, if you live in this area and you have a rattlesnake show up or something like that, if you call me, I will come get it and I will take it far from civilization and I will release it. Uh, so if there's any way to do it safely. Um, if you kill it because you felt you had no other choice, I understand in a populated area. I do not like people to go out of their way just to kill any snake. I do not think that any good snake, you know, I, I really have a problem with people think the only good snake is the dead snake. Um, I think that that's a bias and that's an ignorance. And if you feel that way, I challenge you learn a little bit about our slender creatures that crawl on the ground. Uh 90% of what you're going to run into out there is completely harmless, and the other 10% will stay harmless if you leave them alone. Let's go ahead and take the next question.
4: Hi, Jack. This is Stefan from Melbourne. Love the show. Just a quick question for you. I'm getting started in gardening these days, and I'm having a hard time figuring out all the different plants that are in my backyard. I was wondering if you have some quick and easy tips for somebody like me who's just getting started and identifying all the things that are actually growing out there. Thanks. Take care.
1: Oh, first of all, this is cool. This is the third week in a row that one of you Aussies has called me. So I, I really appreciate the international listeners and thanks for calling. Um, I don't know the vegetation in Australia worth, worth a, a doggone. I really don't. I, I know some of your plants and stuff from the research I've done in permaculture and what have you. Um, but I, I don't, uh, I don't really know your, your native plant life. It sounds like that's what you're asking about. Even though you're going to garden, you want to know what's already there, what you can work with, what you can use. There's a couple things that I can think of for you to do. One is find your local gardening community. I guarantee you there are people on your street, on your block, down the road from you, all around that are gardening right now. The ones that have been gardening for a long time generally know the weed species and things like that. And even some of them may have like this weed bias, you know, like that's a so and so weed or whatever. Well, it's important that you know what it is and know how to identify it. And you can look it up. You might find some of the weeds that they're yanking out or edible, uh, it, it, you know things like that in the United States. We have people that just hate lamb's quarters, and they're one of the greatest things in the world to eat. You probably have them in, in Australia, I would imagine, as well. Uh, purslane is another one that people are just, you know, dedicated to eradicating, and it's 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 good chickweed things like that. So that would be one place. Uh, the other place would be go to your local library and ask if they have a book on local uh, uh, native plant life, and, and and start using it to identify things. What the big thing is, is to try to learn, like, go out and find all the stuff, and the stuff that you know what it is, kind of write it down and check it off. And anything you don't know, kind of, you know, just jot down where it was, where you found it, kind of some identifying characteristics, and, and so you can come back and find it where it is in your yard, or where it is in your, you know, a park around you or anything, just so you can learn this stuff. And, you know... When you find someone that knows what they're talking about, be able to show them what you're talking about, explain it clearly, or use a book to try to identify it. I mean, these are the ways that I have um, educated myself to what's growing around me uh, through books, through local uh, local experts. And through the things that were taught to me growing up. And that's one thing I guess that if you're, if you're lucky to have that as a kid and someone takes you out and you got a grandfather that's like, that's plant and that's chickweed, that's what, the, you know, that's sumac, this is what this does, this is what you can do with that. You're lucky. And what you need to do if you don't have that is try to find someone that did. So try to look for a local, uh, maybe a local botanist. Um, t- call if you have a, a local university. If they have a botany department, ask if there's any students there that maybe would be interested in a little part-time money, maybe you know a few dollars an hour to do, do a, a neighborhood walk and, and identify plant species. There's all kinds of ways to get information if you'll ask for help. And you know, my understanding of the way you guys are down there, you're probably a little bit more open to uh, to contact from neighbors than unfortunately a lot of us are in certain parts of the United States. You guys, I know every Aussie or New Zealander, and I know you're different people, and I'm not putting you in one boat, but Just those two nations, whenever I've had the pleasure of meeting someone from them, some of the most friendly people, outgoing people I've ever met. So use that outgoing attitude and go out there and find someone that knows what they're doing, best I can do for you there. And, again, use your library, call colleges. If you can talk to a botany professor or anybody that that works in in that line of work in a university and say, are there any layman's books that you would recommend for me? to? They're probably going to know that, and I'll probably be happy to tell you. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and take the next one.
4: Hi Jack, this is John in Salt Lake. I have a quick dog question for you. Seeing as you are a dog owner, uh, my wife and I are considering getting another dog. Uh, We have a Labrador that's aging and we have narrowed it down to either a German Shepherd or a Black Mouth Cur. We were wondering um, if we should get a male or a female, if you have any input on the differences of them or care. We're not looking to breed or anything. We just want a good family pet that also um, can do a little um, watchdog home security uh, for us and be protective of us and our kids. Uh, thanks for your input
1: and take care. Bye. Okay, great question. I'm sure one that some people are going to take some exceptions and disagree with. So post your opinion in the show notes if you disagree with what some of the things I'm about to say. Number one, let's talk about the breeds because that's, a, that's a one that I, I know a lot about both breeds. As an owner of a German Shepherd, I can tell you that they are absolutely courageous, what required to be, even if they're timid otherwise. Like uh, our dog Max, if he's in trouble or something, he's all timid and all, but if there is a sound outside at night, that dog is charging toward it and he wants to know what it is and he's not going to stop until until he finds out or makes it go away. And uh, I have no doubt that this dog, as gentle as he is, as easy as it is to bring someone around and immediately make a friend out of him uh, because he's told so, would bite and continue to bite if there was ever a situation where it was needed, and it's certainly intimidating to see a 120-pound German Shepherd charging at you. Uh, so great dog for what you're looking for, because the other side of them is when they're a well-acclimated family pet, um, they love kids, uh, the kids can play with them. I have, My grandmother had one when I was a little baby, about like a year old, two years old, just learning how to walk, and they found me at one time standing on his feet trying to put socks on him back into a corner, and he wouldn't even growl. And this was a dog that was actually considered an aggressive uh, German Shepherd. Uh, they also, to their dismay, found him one time. I was told, you know, obviously I can't remember this, but I was an infant. In one of those swings, uh, you wind up, and the swing swings the baby, and they had left the room for a second, and the swing stopped going. I started crying, and they came back, and this huge dog had my tiny little leg in his mouth and was swinging the swing for me. Uh, which, of course, they were terrified when they saw it until they realized what he was doing and still wanted him off. But German Shepherds are just great family dogs and great defensive assets at the same time. And extremely intelligent. I'll get back to the intelligence in a second. Blackmouth Kerr, um almost the same, but a different attitude. Much more of a laid-back dog in general, but really defensive of a family if they feel the need to, very good at identifying when there is a threat, and then something that's that's really unique to them is, not unique, but more so, I would say, than even a German Shepherd. When it comes to defending people, uh, German Shepherds, if it's small and helpless, they really gravitate towards like an infant or something like that. Blackmouth Mouth Kerr, Kerr in general, seem the children. Not just when they're little tiny, but anybody that's a kid in that whole adolescent range, if they think that kid's being threatened, the person threatening them is going to have to shoot that dog to get to the kid. That's just how they are. They just have that in them. And they're very tough dogs. That's why a lot of times they're inbred with other dogs and used for things like boar hunting. Uh, So they're a strong, tough And they're a worry-free dog. You're going to be less likely to have hip dyslexia and things like that in a cur than you are in a German Shepherd. Now, male-female, which is what you really asked. I just couldn't not comment on that just because I like both breeds so much. Um, Male-female, I'll put it to you this way. You get a little bit more of that assertive attitude, courageousness, from a male dog, not that a female won't exhibit it when it's necessary, but they just have a little bit more of that prominence, that 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 attitude, that you know. Uh, health-wise, I found males to be a little bit less likely to need a trip to a vet than a female, and I think that's true with all species, which is why women end up paying more for health insurance than men. Um, even a spayed female, you're gonna see. I think you're gonna take more trips to the vet. With a female than a male. Not enough to really matter, but if you're just really trying to tip the scales one way or another, those are some things to think about. The thing with the male and the assertiveness in a male dog comes more stubbornness. I have always found it easier to train a female than to train a male. Not that I can't train them both, not that I can't get their their, their tasks accomplished almost in the same amount of time, but I've found that females have been more eager to please if you wanted to give a dog an IQ test, I think a German Shepherd's a more intelligent dog than a cur. And I think because of that, they're harder to train because when you're smart, you're more likely to figure out how to not do something you don't feel like doing. Give you an example recently of how smart these damn dogs are. Um my wife was watching that guy, what's his name? Caesar, uh the dog whisperer guy, and they had this little dog. That was attached to his toys. So the way he she he dealt with this little freaky chihuahua was he would just stand on the toy until the dog gave up. And I mean this was like an aggressive dog. Now Max isn't that way, but when we're playing fetch with him and all, he's really attached to his toys. I've taught him leave it, and I can pick it up without him. But every once in a while he jumps at it. So she's a little less assertive with him. So she's doing this, and he drops it when he's told to drop it. Now she stands on it, pushes him back, makes him sit down, and then picks it up. Well, he does this, and he gets along with us for a while. So I take him outside the next day, and I tell him, he sits down, I say, drop your toy. He drops his toy between his feet, and what's he do? He takes his front paw, and he stands on it, and he looks right at me. Like, now what are you going to do? that That's the intelligence level of a German Shepherd. I think you're dealing with that with border collies, you're dealing with that with Australian Shepherds, you're dealing with that with Siberian Huskies, a completely different, another dog I have a lot of experience. The intelligent breeds can be taught to do so many great things, but you're going to work harder to get it done. Either dog in your situation is good. If you're up to a little bit more stubbornness to do all the things you want to train the dog to do, uh, and you want a little bit more of an outgoing, assertive, confident animal, go with a male. If you want a dog that's going to be just as willing to defend you, but a little bit more compliant, go with a female. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take the next question.
4: Hi, Jack. It's uh, Jason Castleman. Up here in Fairview, Alberta, Canada, uh, we're actually uh, in the northwest uh, corner of Alberta, uh, just about uh, uh, 1,200 kilometers uh, south of Alaska, and uh, so actually pretty far north. And uh, we're in a farming area, peace country. We grow. I was just uh, I, I listened to your show lots and uh, started to uh, do a lot of the things that you talk about there to prepare and actually we survived the uh, ice storm of eastern Ontario we were in eastern Ontario Canada uh, during the ice storm of uh, 1998 out of power for three weeks and uh, but anyways just talking about canola in the peace country here in Alberta we grow a a lot of canola Uh, we have about a million acres of canola that gets seeded in the peace country every year and there's about 15 million acres of canola grown in Canada every year. And, uh, so I was, um, just, you know, I, everything else that, uh, that I've heard, I'm, I kind of agree, but whenever I hear the, the Frankenstein, uh, canola comments there, I'm just <laughs> a little bit, you know, it's, I guess that's where we, that's where we can, uh, have a little difference of opinion. But I, I think some of your information isn't, isn't a hundred percent accurate. And, uh, you know I, I think that's that's uh, everything else that I've heard from you is is okay but uh, definitely on the canola um, I would recommend uh, you know I I can provide information for you on that and and what canola how the whole program uh, of growing canola for oil and, and what oil the canola oil is for and everything else so it's uh, just uh, just wanted to make a comment on that I, I appreciate your
1: now um... I wonder if you almost have me confused with somebody else when you when you say this because uh, I have talked about how uh, rapeseed was uh, interbred to come up with canola and something that produced kind of a toxin ended up producing a relatively benign neutral oil and where its roots are, and how it was some of the first actual engineering of a plant that actually changed a species to something from a uh, something that would be a toxic species to a non-toxic species. Um but in general, I don't find canola to be the most healthy alternative for oil. I would much rather cook with something like olive oil. So you're not going to find me using canola oil by choice, but canola in general, I don't really have a problem with. So the fact that you have millions of acres of canola and you I don't want to shut your industry down. I don't want canola oil to go away. Just not my personal choice. But My problem with canola being grown in Canada and throughout the United States, northern United States today as well, is not that it's canola; it is that it is in in you know ninety percent or more of it is now produced by Monsanto with genetic engineering, where the plant is actually altered at the DNA level and specifically made to be what's called Roundup Ready. And what happens is the farmer goes out, plows the field throws the canola down, and as it starts to come up, sprays the hell out of it with Roundup. About halfway through the growing season, sprays the hell out of it with Roundup again, and all that stuff goes on there, and because it's Roundup ready, all the weeds die around it, and it stays strong, because it's designed to genetically overpower the Roundup. And then Roundup is not biodegradable, and that's why Monsanto had to take that claim off of their label. They used to have it there, and it's gone now, because it's been proven to be a lie and then all of that canola that's out there growing that's been sprayed two or more times in a season with a with a herbicide like roundup absorbs that into its its into its plant structure and excretes portions of it in its oil, and that oil is then put in a bottle and sold to me, and if I use that oil, I'm consuming not only oil from a plant that was absolutely 100% altered at the DNA level, which I have a problem with in the first place, I'm also consuming the residue of a herbicide. So that's my issue with the canola that's currently being grown. If we go back 20 years... To when the canola being grown wasn't that way, again, not my first choice for a healthy oil, but I fine. Okay, so, everything I've just said, as far as I know, is 100% factual. You said I'm wrong. Now, if you can show me where I'm wrong about that, I'd love to see it. You know, I'd love to hear your take on, you can call back in with this, I'd love to hear your take on what Monsanto did to one of your own farmers up there, Percy Schmeiser where they tried to take his farm away because their dad gone seed cross-pollinated with his, and your judge in the country of Canada said that once the seed was on Smizer's farm, it didn't matter how it got there. Now, the way I see it, their crap invaded his farm and destroyed his seed stock because he was growing organic canola. He had no desire to have that crap on there, and they tried to shut him down. So, my problem with your canola isn't that it's canola oil. It's genetically modified, sprayed with Roundup, put in a bottle, and being fed to people without their knowledge that that's what's going on. So, there you go. So, if that's what you take exception to, call back and clarify. If you think I just have a problem with canola in general, that's not me. That's some of the the the, the, the FUD out there, right, that's being thrown out about how this plant was used to create neurotoxins and they're trying to poison us. No, it's not me. Alright? You'll get that from other sources. My problem, genetic engineering, non-biodegradable herbicide, excreted in the oil, put in my body. Got a big problem with that. There you go. Next one, let's go ahead and take another question.
0: Hey Jack, uh, this is Nelson in Virginia. Um, I'm wondering if you could recommend uh a wood stove. A small wood stove or you know, small to medium. Uh, what would you recommend? Thank you.
1: Brands of wood stoves are not something I know a lot about. I do know that they're pretty much a a really great way to heat, and uh, we're looking at using one for an interesting application I will save for later because I have a question about it um, or a statement about it uh, with another caller. Again, you guys kind of sync up at times. Um, But this is a couple things I would say. Number one, I don't like the concept of pellet stoves because now I need pellets. And generally, I need electricity to run a corkscrew thing that keeps delivering pellets into the stove. I know they're efficient. I know they burn a recycled product. I know that they are uh, a great tool. Uh, But I also know if I want true independence that I don't want to have to get a pellet. I want to be able to take any piece of wood and shove it in there and let it burn because I might get into a situation where that's what I need. So pellet stoves are okay. But you have to see them as something that still creates, or still has some level of dependence. Now you can stockpile your pellets, and you can have a year's worth of pellets stocked up, and that's great, but normal wood stove, so I'm a big fan of that. I've also been doing a lot of research lately into soapstone, and the properties of soapstone, and I think that if I were going to invest in a wood stove, and I don't know that I am for use in my home, because I have other options, uh, and I don't have that, I don't have the winter that a lot of you guys do further north, where I live now, Um, But I would look at a soapstone stove because soapstone takes in heat and radiates it for hours and hours and hours after the fire dies down. Uh, A very even uh, distributed heat. So uh, there's a couple different manufacturers out there that do soapstone stoves. So if I was going to do a major investment, I would look at um, a really nice soapstone stove. If I just need a little stove, I mean... I've, I've got a friend that, that lives up in Maine that sent me some pictures, and uh, he went uh, down in a local department store. I don't remember what he bought. He bought a little old stove, and he said it, it just keeps his cabin toasty warm. So I think that any good, solid, you know, cast iron uh, stove is going to do well for you. I've had some listeners that have picked up military uh, wood stoves uh, on eBay for a few bucks, and, and they all seem to be happy with them. So I don't think there's a way to go wrong with this. But uh, on a higher-end investment, I would look to soapstone, and I would avoid pellets. Best I can do for you, man. I'm not an expert on wood stoves. Um, you actually called in with another question. I think I might do a, a uh, an entire show on that, though, in the future. We've done it before, but uh, this gentleman also asked a question about just heating other heating options in general. I'll put that together for you guys in the next couple of weeks and put that one out. Let's take the next question.
4: Hello, Jack. This is Bill from Sugar Land, Texas. Uh, I have a son-in-law in the Army that's... Um Stationed in Germany. Uh, my daughter's with him living on post as a civilian, and um, they've just been escalated to threat level Charlie. As you know, being an army, threat level Delta is the highest in wartime level. So she was a little concerned, and we talked about what she would do as a civilian uh, if there was an incident in and around uh, the Ger- Germany area. Uh, of course, we talked about packing a bu- bug out bag and that type of thing, make sure she has her passport. But what would you suggest? Um, coming from that background, does she try to make her way into Switzerland? Does she do what the Army tells her to do? Uh, what, uh, what do you suggest? And, uh, I appreciate your show. Uh, really, really enjoy it. Got a lot of good information, and thanks a lot.
1: Man, you, you guys want (laughs) to, you guys want to give me hard ones today. You don't want to give me these easy ones, like, what do I grow in a shady spot in my yard? You want to give me stuff where I got to think. Um, Seriously though, first of all, uh, tell them thanks for serving, both both, the, both the, his son uh, for, for his direct service and, and the, the wife for supporting him. I think we forget about our military spouses. It ain't an easy job being a military spouse and having to move all over the world and support a spouse. And a lot of military marriages, more than a normal uh, number, end up in divorce. And the devoted military spouse is as important to our military as the men that are fighting because we all are fighting for something. And our young men that are over there unmarried, they're fighting for their mom and their dad and their sisters and their brothers and the people they went to school with. But the day a man takes a wife, he starts fighting for her, and that's a whole other level. And that's why those older NCOs have a little bit more wisdom than the ones that are uh, young and, and full of spunk and are there to, uh, to go to foreign lands meet interesting people and kill them, as the T-shirt says. And that tempered wisdom is the, is the cap uh, that makes the backbone that is the private in the Army the effective tool that it is. So thank you to both of them. On the question... Um, first of all, yeah, does she listen? Does she do what the army tells her to? Uh, maybe. What you do is you do listen to the army. If the army puts out information for the civilians uh, that are living off post, near post, or on post uh, in and around the area, listen very attentively. And at the end, you still make your own decision because a military spouse, to me, is Putting out a level of service, but they are not accountable to the army. The army doesn't tell a, 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 a soldier's wife or a soldier's husband what the hell to do. They might tell them what to do with the housing that's provided to them, but that's where it ends. As a civilian, you make your own decisions. So you take the advice and then do what you will with the advice. Uh, the second thing is that the terror alert that went up over there, the uh, the, the army alert that went up is over there now is about localized terrorism. It's not really about Europe melting down into a cauldron of, of hate and, and, and ashes. Uh, there's some real problems in France and uh, Greece right now, but Germany's pretty daggone stable. They're more worried about the lone person setting off a bomb somewhere or doing some kind of biological attack or something. And in that case, you know, obviously, wherever the danger is, you got to get the hell away from it. Longer term and bigger, though. Getting into Switzerland may or may not be the right thing to do. I mean... It ain't always going to be like World War II, where there's this little neutrality center in the middle that everybody is uh, everybody's happy to leave alone. We don't know what's going to happen next. It's probably one of the more stable local places. But I would say that one thing that any military spouse serving overseas, especially if they have children in their care, needs to be prepared to do, is to leave that country in 30 minutes flat if they feel they need to. The soldier, the marine, the sailor, the airman is going to have to stay behind. That is their job, that is their duty, and they don't desert that. But the spouse should be ready to get on a plane and come back to America in 15 minutes if she has to. And if there's a situation, I don't think it's there now, but if there's ever a situation where it looks like it can get really, really bad, and there's any doubt in your heart or your mind, get out of the country. Go home. If it's just as bad here because something's going on globally, maybe Switzerland is the place to go. That's not the most likely thing, and we all know that. Um, If it's really bad there, it's probably safer places over here. So they need to have a plan for this. They need to have folks back home that they can put them up, because obviously there's no way on a soldier's salary you're going to maintain a second property back in the United States in most instances. Uh, So they need to have a plan to get the hell out. They definitely need to have a good, solid bug-out bag. Remember, your bug-out bag isn't something you run away with. It's designed to get you from a point of danger to a point of safety and support you for 72 hours. Um, pay attention to what's going on around them and having friends in the local area, local native German friends, or if they were in Italy, I'd say about Italian friends, or not, so it's not about Germany, right? This is about anywhere you're stationed. Having f- local friends, local contacts that you can rely on outside of the circle of influence that is the military, um, I think is a good idea. For those that believe that in a shit at the scenario, that our military is going to do everything they can to make sure that they take care of, you know, let's leave the soldiers out for a minute, and the abuses that go on there, but of our families, uh, of the soldiers' families, um, I think they will as they can, but don't you bet on it. You be prepared to take care of yourself. If you are in the military and you have a spouse, you make sure there's a plan in place for them. If you are a spouse, you make sure you have a plan in place, and you make sure that, yes, you do listen to command, But you listen to command, you listen to what's going on around you, you listen to local media, you pay attention, you keep an ear to the ground, and in the end, you are not required to follow orders. And if you have to leave your spouse behind and go back to the United States, it's sad, it sucks, but it's part of the commitment you have as a military family. Sometimes soldiers have to go where families cannot. And sometimes families have to depart from where soldiers are. And that's just a reality. So best I can do with that one. Like I said, it's a hard one. And, again, send both of them my thanks for their service. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, take another one.
4: Hey, Jack. Love the show. Uh question for you concerning the uh, gold-lined uh, one-gallon paint cans um, that you've been talking about recently.
2: Uh, how do you know
4: that they are keeping a good seal? Um, I can with... Um, mason jars and you know it's convenient because you can see what's inside um and this is for dehydrated items um you know you can see what's inside and i can tell that i've got a good vacuum because i always vacuum seal what i uh the dehydrated foods that i store in the glass jars and i throw in some o2 absorbers too but but i do vacuum seal them and you can see that there's a seal because the lid is drawn down um when you're talking about storing something for five ten years um Again, how do you know that you still have a good seal on those 1 gallon cans? Uh just curious. Thank you.
1: Ah, nice easy one finally. <laughs> okay. Um the paint cans this guy's talking about, I buy from a company called the Carry Company, because everybody always asks the Carry Company. You can go to their website, just Google the Carry Company, look them up. If you can't figure out how to buy hit contact us, contact them, and they'll happily quote you and sell you whatever you want. I generally don't use the gallon cans he's asking about. I believe the size I use are actually pints. I bought ones that would fit in my shelf reliance uh, Harvest 72, because I thought it was a great way to store them. Uh, but as far as the seal, well, first of all, you got to realize what you're using. You're using a can that's designed to hold paint. Now, the ones with the, uh, the FDA-approved uh, gold uh, phenolic coating uh, are not really designed to hold paint. They are designed to hold foodstuffs. But the technology, the way the lid works and the way it seals is exactly the same as a can that somebody fills up with paint that, if exposed to oxygen for any length of time, starts to cure and starts to harden and ruins it. And in spite of all that, I put paint cans away for years and years and years take them out. The paint's still good, especially if they've been properly sealed and not opened and then put away with lumps of paint and crap like that on them. So um, it's a very secure device in of itself. Secondly, when I put stuff into paint cans, I also include uh, O2 absorbers. When you you can't look really and tell because they don't really crush down the way that a uh, you know the, the the little bubbly tops do on a, a canning jar but um when it, all that uh, oxygen that's in there is absorbed uh it does form a seal and at least when you open it you'll know if the seal is broken because when you open one of these cans it's got O2 absorbers in it you hear a psh, you know you hear that that vacuum seal that was there Uh, The next thing is, remember, this is dehydrated food. Uh, It'll store for years in a Ziploc bag and and be okay. As long as no rodents or anything get to it. So it's inherently stable even when it's not in the best environment. So it's not something, you know, I've never heard of anybody eating, you know, dehydrated corn and falling over dead or getting sick. Uh, when kept in a light-deprived, low-oxygen environment, you know, 10 years, I mean, there, there's cases where you can do this stuff for 20 or more. The, everybody puts a limit on everything to cover their ass. but um, So it, I, I just don't see it to be that big of a deal. Um, now, if you wanted extra security, same company, the carry Company, sells everything paint cans, and they make these little locking mechanisms. And what these are really for are people that ship paint through the mail. And you put these little locking deals on top of the cans, and they help secure that lid. And that's mainly so when it's being shipped and some you know, postman throws it in a truck or whatever, but the heavy paint in it doesn't you know, jar the lid loose. You could add those. I think it's overkill. Give it a shot. Try it. And um, if you have any doubts about a can and you're ready to go ahead and try something of a particular thing you can, go ahead and open one up. And I think you'll find that they are very, very reliable. Anything can fail... Uh, but we have to ask Is what the consequences are. If we really wanted to put an extra level of insurance in there, we take a food-grade plastic bag, we put the food in there inside the can, we put the O2 absorber in the bag, we wrap the bag up and tuck it in there, and then we put O2 absorbers in whatever space is left to close the can up. I don't think that's necessary, but you could do it. Um, you could use mylar inside of there and create two seals. I just think that people... Um, there's certain things that I worry about spoilage with. I worry about breaking down. When it comes to something that's been properly dehydrated, um, of all the things that I store food on, the one that I worry the least about becoming contaminated or being ruined is dehydrated food. About the only thing that ruins dehydrated food is moisture. So, there you go. Best I can do with that one, but, uh, hell, that was a lot easier than some of these other ones So Let's go take another one. See what else you guys have in store for me today. Hey, Jack, this is uh, Christopher up in Virginia. I had a really quick question. I sent you um, an email about some of these dome homes, and actually people are making greenhouses out of dome homes. And uh, there's also a video out there about a guy who talks about how the heat is so consistent and even throughout his dome home because of the, the, the structure of it. Now, I got to thinking that maybe you could build a greenhouse and put either a wood-burn stove or an earthen oven somewhere in the center and kind of keep that thing at maybe even 65 degrees for the winter, uh, which might be helpful, especially if you're running aquaponics. So uh, I'm trying to put together some thoughts from all your episodes
4: and all the stuff I'm coming across um, on my own. But um, I hope it's helpful. Uh, let me know what you think. I'd appreciate it. And hey, Thanks for all you do, Jack. Take care. Bye.
1: Well, there's the call that lines up with the wood stove question. Um, and there's my interest in a, uh, if I can find a used one or, or fabricate something myself in soapstone, because the soapstone stoves are pretty expensive to park out. Uh, in a greenhouse, and they're also really beautiful, and I'd want it in my house, but if I could find some way to work with soapstone to do this, uh, because of that radiant uh, effect, I don't want, if I did what this guy's talking about, I don't want to have to go out in the middle of the night and add more wood to the stove, and I don't want to use electricity for this, I want it to be independent, but if we take a nice soapstone stove in an environment like that, and we build a nice big fire in it, and then we we build a hot Hot, quick burning fire that burns down to really good coals, and we keep the coals in a controlled burn. uh, That's going to make it through till morning when the sun comes up. The thing with a greenhouse is um, we only need that heat really during the night when the sun's not there to provide the radiant heat that the greenhouse creates for us. Um, So we would have, but then we got to go out and build a fire every night. Now, not every night it's going to get cold enough to need it. So uh, it's a thought that I have, and I, I I don't think it's a bad thought. I think that. The more uh, space you have in your greenhouse, uh, you know, with a big enough stove, the more it makes sense to do this because the more production you can do, and with a large dome-shaped greenhouse uh, and the right heating uh, apparatus to keep it going, boy, you could uh, you could have some interesting things to make available in the local economy through a CSA or through farmers' markets or through local merchants, uh, and make pretty decent income at a time when you know fresh local produce is generally available. An aquaponic system makes sense as well. Uh, all that water is going to retain a lot of the heat. It's going An aquaponic system is actually a lot more stable inside a greenhouse than just a greenhouse, even without additional heat. Because all day long as that's heating up, the water's p- pulling warmth, and as everything starts to cool down inside there, the water releases its warmth. I did an experiment with a little greenhouse where I just took a great big black trash can and filled it up with water, and put a lid on it and just left it in the greenhouse. And it actually helped keep the greenhouse warmer longer. It wasn't enough to fully do everything, but it acted as a heat sink and it discharged at night. Um, and it was it was reasonably effective. So I don't think the idea is bad. I do think you do have to think about the fact that you're going to have to go out there and build a fire every freaking night. And unless you have some kind of a self-feeding stove or something like that, um, you're going to want something that has a radiant capability. Uh, I don't know that you want to try to hold it at 65 degrees uh, all through the winter, like you were saying. But what you want to do is keep it warm enough that none of the plants are damaged. And uh, another thing you're going to have to think about, though, is obviously if you've got this thing centrally located in the center of a dome, you're going to have to put in some kind of a ventilation chimney-type system. And you're going to have an area directly around that where not only can't you put your plants... But you're going to want to uh, keep open and accessible so that if you happen to be in there and try to squeeze between a location in the evening after you've built a fire, you're not going to burn yourself on your stove. You're going to leave working area. So it's going to require an overall larger construction. I've thought about this a lot, and I'm looking at a lot of different ways to create heat inside a greenhouse to deal with the nights when you get you know, the seven-degree nights that we occasionally get down here and that you guys up north get all the time. Uh, and I think that is one way that may make sense. A simpler solution, though, may be a simple um, heater that uses propane. Because, again, in that environment, we don't have to try to keep it at 65 degrees. If we can keep the nights in the high 40s, just about anything we want to grow is going to survive. And a lot of our plants are going to even be better with those cool, cool nights Nice, warm, but not hot days. So I'm looking at some different options. That's an interesting one. Also, I can't remember the name of the product. I'll try to look it up in one of my magazines and tell you about it on Monday if I don't forget. Uh, But there's a product that just basically, they're not really domes, but they're kind of sort of dome-like greenhouses you can build with them. And all they sell you are the metal brackets. And you go out and buy your own lumber and just, you know, basically screw or bolt these brackets. And you buy a kit for a certain size and they send you the right number of brackets. That looks really interesting to me, and it looks like a really affordable way, because some of the dome kits and stuff like that are very, very expensive, but this you can use rough-cut lumber from the uh, the store and these brackets. So if anybody rem- knows what I'm talking about, post in the show notes today, and I'll try to remember to bring the product name on the show uh, Monday for you, but I just thought of that now, so I uh, I don't have it handy at hand. Let's go ahead and take another question.
4: Hey, Jack. This is Jake from Milwaukee. You said on one of your shows that you think water should not be fluoridated. Could you go more in depth on this subject? Also, do you know where and when the practice of deliberate water fluoridation was started? Thanks for the great podcast.
1: Well, I'm going to tell you what I think about this. I'm going to answer your question about where it was first started in the United States. I'm going to tell you what I believe is where it was first used in the world. Uh, Before I do that, though, I'm going to play a video clip from you that came off of YouTube. I'll place a link to the entire video you can look at uh, for yourself. The first 60 70% of this is a newscast out of Tennessee. This is mainstream media news that you're going to hear. And at some point, you're going to hear it switch over to an Irishman. And you'll know when that happens because it has that distinctive sound that Irishmen have. And he's going to give you stuff that's a little bit more opinion-based. And you'll know, because I've told you now, where one ends and the other begins. It'll be very, very obvious. So I don't want you to think the Irishman's part of the news report because that would be misleading. But I want to tell you this. The Irishman is going to cite a source and some information, and some, uh, some information that was put down. Uh, and I'm going to tell you that the source is credible, and you can look it up for yourself if you'd like to, and everything that he's going to tell you from the source is true, and that source exists. Now, his opinion, you can see where the opinion is, and then you can form your own opinion, but I do want you to know that even though he's putting some opinion in here, that the source he's citing is actually factual and perfectly quoted. So go ahead let's listen to this. Let's listen to mainstream media, and some information about some of the first use of fluoride in our water system. And I'll come back and wrap the show up today by telling you what I think this means to us.
5: We have been fluoridating our water in Tennessee for more than 50 years, but never before has there been more talk than that fluoridating our water might be a bad idea and a health risk. Tonight, Dennis Ferrier has the latest developments on a story that impacts all of us. Joey Hensley is a respected physician. He's also a Tennessee state lawmaker. He is now combining those two professions to make a very strong point.
3: We've been doing it 50 years, uh, but just because we've been doing something 50 years doesn't necessarily mean that it's right.
5: Hensley's talking about something most of us don't even think about, fluoridating water. After much research, the doctor has sent out a letter to every water district in Tennessee asking them to stop fluoridating water. The evidence, he says, fluoride works better when you rub it on your teeth, not when you drink it that fluoridation is medication added to water without your permission, and that's wrong. But most of all, because the National Research Council believes young children are getting three to four times the dose of fluoride as adults. And now the American Dental Association is telling mothers not to make baby formula with fluoridated water because of fear of dental fluorosis.
3: And that's big news, and that really hasn't been um, uh, publicized very much.
5: Health researcher Dan Stockin believes that this ADA warning about baby formula and fluoride is just the beginning.
0: This, The ramifications of this are so huge, I'm sure that the state health department hasn't quite figured it out yet. Because, see, once the door cracks, and it is now for what it does to teeth, the next group, one of the next groups that's going to start raising their hands and saying, what about us, is people who are on dialysis and people who have borderline kidney damage and impairment. Then there's all the people that have hypothyroidism.
5: Scientists like Nobel Prize winner Arvid Carlson and a large group of EPA scientists have called for the banning of fluoride because we don't know how much we're ingesting, so we don't know if we're being poisoned.
0: There are so many potential legal things about to happen that as a taxpayer, I think it would be really, really smart for the water districts and the metro Nashville Look, just if people want fluoride, let them use fluoride toothpaste and spit it out. But don't go poisoning everyone. Don't be, don't continue this after everyone knows all this information now, just because it's not convenient.
5: Now, Dr. Hensley has already had one response. Spring City in Ray County is going to stop fluoridating its water, and it is that simple. I mean, there's no law; it's all voluntary, Dan. So anyone can turn on the fluoride or turn it off. Dennis, let's make sure we're clear on this. Fluoride, it is in tea, it's in coffee, it's in water, it's in bread, it's in toothpaste, but it's actually a poison, right? It's, it sure is, and here's the, the quickest evidence. Go to your uh, bathroom and pick up your uh, toothpaste, and you'll see a warning that if you a child swallows more than a pea-sized amount of toothpaste,
3: call poison control. Then, have wow. I mean, you noticed Blair now wants to bring in fluoride in the water, and of course all around the world they're doing that. In America, fluoride in the water, good for teeth. Crap! In, in Toronto, there's a guy called Lineback, who was one of the greatest um, supporters um, of fluoride in the water. He's the head of dentistry at Toronto University. He's come out now and said, for God's sake, don't have it, don't have it. And he, as he was saying, they've had it in the water for years, decades in Toronto. They don't have it in the water in Vancouver. There are fewer cavities by a mile Per head of population in Vancouver than there are in Toronto. Hey, it's good for teeth. Aye, wait, let's see what it's really about. Do you know when fluoride was first put in drinking water? In the Nazi concentration camp. Stands back in amazement, can't believe it. This is Charles Perkins, a chemist who wrote to the Lee Foundation for Nutritional Research, Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1954 and this is what he wrote. In the 1930s Hitler and the German Nazis envisaged a world to be dominated and controlled by a Nazi philosophy of Pan-Germanism. The German chemists worked out a very ingenious and far-reaching plan of mass control which was submitted to and adopted by the German general staff. This plan was to control the population in any given area through mass medication of drinking water supplies. By this method they could control the population in whole areas Reduced population by water medication that would induce sterility in women and so on. In this scheme of mass control, sodium fluoride occupied a prominent place. That's what it's about.
1: Okay, like I said, the the Irishman had some opinions there that were specifically saying that basically they're using this stuff to kill us and dumb us down. Um, I don't actually believe that. For those of you that think I've crossed over into the nether world today by bringing this subject up, answering this question, bringing this information to you, uh, I have not. To believe that, I would have to believe that all of the people all over the United States that work in these water treatment facilities that dump this crap into our water, that have the job of doing it, actually think that it's a good idea to dump people down and kill people. Um, I would have to believe that there's a vast conspiracy that infiltrates every part of society that has decided to do this to people. And if I believe that, I would tell you that I wouldn't expect 60% of our water supply to be fluorinated. I would expect a law requiring it, uh, and I would expect it to be 100%. I wouldn't expect local water municipalities to be able to stop doing it with no pressure from anybody. Um, I wouldn't expect any of that. So I think that the main reason that fluoride is used in our nation today is because people are wrong and believe it helps keep our teeth healthy. Uh, so that's why. But it doesn't change the chemical. It doesn't change what it is. It doesn't change what's been done with it. Here's some other facts. These are absolute facts. When they get a bag of this stuff into a water treatment facility... And they open that bag and they've set it up so it'll drip into the water supply and provide a one part per million, which is the goal of these programs, one part per million of fluoride to our water. The bag says deadly poison and lists symptoms like kidney and liver failure and death as a result of ingestion of it. It is a poison. Well, you heard the newscaster say that if you go get a a tube of toothpaste, and you read the warning label on the tube of toothpaste, it'll say that if you have somebody swallow more than the recommended amount for brushing with, call poison control. Is factual. If you doubt it, right now go get a tube of toothpaste if you're at work or in the car. When you get home, go get a tube of fluoride toothpaste and read it for yourself. If you go to the store, and like uh, Home Depot or something, look where they have poisons for rats, for rat poison, Many varieties of rat poison you look at, you will see one ingredient in it, one primary active ingredient, and it will be sodium fluoride. It is a poison. Now, the person that objects to this says, oh, but it naturally occurs in our water in certain areas. Yes, feces naturally occur in our water in certain areas. Cliptosporidium naturally occurs in our water in certain areas. Arsenic naturally occurs in water in certain areas. Just because something shows up somewhere without a man doing it doesn't mean it's safe and healthy for you. Oh, it's, it's 100% natural. The destroying angel mushroom, the big white ones with the evil little rings around them that grow in people's backyards that you never, never eat, one of the most lethal uh, forms of fungus in the world if ingested, is 100% natural. Uh, if you eat lead... You will give yourself lead poisoning, but lead is natural. You see what I'm saying? Just because something's natural occurring doesn't mean that it's safe for ingestion. Uh, the next thing, where was it first used? It was used in the 50s, I believe. I know that the location was uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, was the first place that ever fluorinated their water. In fact, it might have been all the way back into uh, the 40s. It might have been around 45, right at the end of the war, that this happened. As far as the link to Nazi Germany, here's some more facts. Now, you do what you, I, I'm not gonna be the guy that tells you that there's this big conspiracy to make you stupid and kill you or damage you in some way. I'm just gonna say these are some facts, and you draw your own conclusions. Uh, at the end of the war, there was a, a military operation called Operation Paperclip, and this is public knowledge. You can go look this up too. And this was a program by which former Nazi scientists were brought over to the United States. People like Werner von Braun, who was became part of the space exploration project, and and the people that helped us, you know, build weapons and rockets and missiles. Those were the ones that got all the press. They said, "Look, isn't this great that we're bringing these guys over?" And you know, they really weren't bad guys. They were just doing what they were told. I mean, these weren't the guys running the uh, the concentration camps or anything. It was a guy building a rocket. Now he's gonna come here and build rockets with us. Isn't this great? Well, what they don't tell you about Operation Paperclip is there were people brought over there that were working on germ warfare and all of these other things, and all of a sudden we start putting our fluoride in the water right after that happens. Now, I'm not saying that you know some Nazi advisor said to our government, you do this to dumb your people down too. I'm just saying that the people that did it first, some of them were brought over here as scientists that we were going to use for our own use, and next thing you know, we're dumping a toxic substance into our water. The problem, the big problem of fluoride, is twofold. Number one, well, it's only one part per million. How much water do you drink a day? So that's the thing. If I drink a lot of water and you drink a little, I'm putting a lot more in my body. Number two, it's a a toxin that accumulates in the body and is hard to excrete. So over time, the level inside my body or your body for ingesting this crap continues to rise. So it doesn't like you. You drink it today, and if you didn't drink fluoride-added water for the next two days, it's all gone. No, it's in your body. It gets stored in your bones. So that means that the level in your body over time continues to go up. And, I mean, those are huge issues to me. And I just don't think it's worth the risk. If you want fluoride for your teeth, you can brush your teeth and spit it out, like the guy from Tennessee said. Um, I do think fluoride, used properly has an effect in helping keep teeth enamel uh, more stable over time and, and prevents decay. I don't think there's anybody that can doubt that it does that. Is it necessary for good dental health? Not necessarily. But I, I don't see it as something that it doesn't do what they say it does. But ingesting it does nothing to do that. When you drink fluoride water with one part per million of it, how long is that in contact with your teeth versus how long is it in contact with your body? I've put it this way before. I think it makes about as much sense as saying, well, suntan lotion uh, prevents sunburn. So I'm going to drink a couple ounces of suntan lotion and then go outside. Uh, It might get on my lips as I drink it, and it might prevent sunburn on my lips. And if I wipe my mouth, I might get a little bit on my face, and it might do that. But all of it that went into me uh, primarily has been toxic in my body and hasn't actually done its intended purpose. So I filter my water. I don't want fluoride in my water. I'm not going to have fluoride in my water. And if I were somewhere uh, with naturally occurring fluoride, I would use fluoride, fluoride filters to get it out. Now, I've given you what I know to be fact. I haven't tried to stir any kind of conspiracy theories up. In fact, I know some people that are true believers in the conspiracy are going to tell me I didn't go far enough. I know some people that don't think there's any kind of uh, maliciousness at all are going to tell me I went too far. But here's the reality. Fluoride, absolutely a poison. Absolutely a poison. Um, Absolutely a cumulative toxin. Absolutely true that it was used by the Nazis in an attempt to dumb down a population and make them more compliant, okay? Uh, Here's some other facts. Most of the fluoride that is put into our water today is actually toxic residue from industrial processes. Um, And a lot of the fluoride being used in America today is being produced in China. And I will put another link to another video where you can look up and see what's left over after the fluoride is dissolved. It's not fluoride that's in this bag that's coming from China. I'll put a link to that video. You can watch that video yourself because I can't do the audio on it. So there you go. I'm not going to consume it. I'm not going to put it in my body. I'm not going to put it into the body of my family. If you want to, that's fine. I'm not saying anybody's out to get you. But my question is, if you could avoid putting a poison in your body, why wouldn't you? And with that, I'll go ahead and wrap up today. Remember, if you want to hear uh, your question, your comment, your, your your whatever on the show, dial 866-65-THINK, leave your question, comment, uh, what have you, in two minutes or less, and I'll try to get you on the air. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.